I today I want to start with this story that start with a youth. Her name is Hannah Selwyn. You'll see a picture of her. She lives in Atlanta, and as she was growing up, every day her mother, every weekday, would take her to, her, to the private school she went to. And along the way, she would always see people in need. A lot of times, people living in the streets of the city. And this is what she said. She said, we're driving down the highway, and there's always this one stoplight we come to before we get to our house. There's always homeless men there begging for food. I didn't want to be a family that sat around and said, we wished we could do something. I wanted to be a family that made a difference, even if it is a small difference. She told her parents about her concern and her desire to get involved, and she called her family together. They started having weekly meetings at a local diner where they could talk about what could they do, you can see her family, what could they do to actually make a difference with the problem of hunger in the world. And by the way, they didn't rush off to do something. They didn't do the first thing. They did research. They looked at organizations and talked with leaders, and they made the decision to do something radically different. Here's her brother Kevin explaining. Every family has a dream. Some families dream of owning a big house with a huge master suite, tons of money, and fancy cars. My family dream is different. We dream of selling this house, moving into a house half its size, and donating half the money to the needy people of Africa. You see, after her family got together, they decided they would sell their house. They were living in a 6,500 square foot house in a part of Atlanta called Ainsley Park, a very wealthy neighborhood. And they decided that they would sell their house and buy a much less expensive house. They would give half of the money from the home, the sale of the big house to help the needy. Now, by the way, their house is amazing. It's got a kitchen with three Viking stoves. It has Corinthian columns out front. And it just seemed wrong to them, to the kids, to Kevin and Hannah, to have so much when they knew there were some people who had so few opportunities. Actually, Hannah said, my family's overconsumption is totally lame. So they connected with the Hunger Project, selected a village in Ghana in Africa, and made it possible to start a business there that would end generations, cycles of poverty. They sold this amazingly beautiful home, and they moved into a smaller house with a humble kitchen and smaller bedrooms. And in the process, they really retooled their lives. By the way, this started with the kids challenging the parents. Now, we're in this study that's called Engage. And today, we look about, well, how do we use the resources that God has provided for, to us to be a part of the revolution of Jesus in the world? How can we connect with the mission of Jesus through our generosity? Would you pray together with me? Lord, this stuff goes deep in our hearts. We become so attached to our stuff. And Lord, that, that word mine is attached to so many things that Lord, we're, we don't have the perspective of this that we know that we should. And we know, Lord, the way of the law would be to make us feel guilty for being so wealthy, for having so many opportunities. But we know that you lead us to learn 
uh, this way of love that's found in Jesus. So I pray that you'd lead us along that path, Lord, and it would be the path that is labeled by a new freedom and a new joy and a new peace uh, and, and a draining away of the anxiety that we feel over all of this. And we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Paul loved the church in Ephesus. It's the place he spent more time than any other time. And the last time he was with the elders in the church of Ephesus, this is part of what he said to them in, in a little speech that he gave. He said, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I've always looked at those words and said, well, why would Jesus say that? I mean, isn't it better to receive gifts? Isn't it better to have things coming toward you than giving things away? And I think one of the reasons we struggle with this is we're really, as a people, what I would say is like caught in a, in a trap. Maybe we don't see it. Yeah, like you, you've, me, you've heard those words, more blessed to give than receive, but we're really trapped by the stuff, the resources that we have in our lives. And by the way, I know this is one of the most uncomfortable conversations we could have at church. And I know that our motives in all of this can be mixed. Come on, I'm one of the leaders of a nonprofit organization that survives on the generosity of people. It's right. But let me tell you, I'm not speaking about this for this reason. And this isn't a plea for you to help Granada or to help get our budget in some place or something like that. Actually, you will rarely hear pleas for your money at Granada. Um, and that's because we're really a family, and if there's a need, we'll let you know, but if there's not, we're not going to talk about it. But I want to talk about it for two reasons. First, we're learning about the mission of the gospel and how our generosity plays such an important role, but maybe not even the role we think that it does in advancing the gospel around the world. And second, I don't know if you know this, Jesus spoke more about money than he did any other topic in his ministry except for one, the kingdom of God. Well, why did he do that? Here's why. Because it is the greatest challenge in our lives to his rule, his lordship, to having him first. In other words, money becomes what we most easily replace God with. Come on, think about it. We trust our money to take care of us and to give us a future, to keep us secure, and to protect us. I mean, don't you think that like most of your prob the problems in your life could be solved if you just like had a little more money? And so you see, we're cut in, caught in this trap where we need money to live, but to focus our lives there will literally take the life out of us. You know, I always think when I'm thinking about this of, of Scrooge from Charles Dickens, A Christmas care, uh, Carol, right? I mean, here's this guy who is so drawn into having more and pursuit of money that he can't even love his own family, his own relatives. He, he can't see the needs that are right next to him. It has taken over his life. You see, money... I'll let a big cat out of the bag. It's not a neutral power. 
We will either tame it and use it for good purposes and the kingdom of God, or it will take captive our own hearts, and it will come to use us. And you say, well, that can't be true. Well, how do you know that's true? Well, think about yourself. How much time do you spend thinking about it or worrying about it or considering how much of it you have, how much you have either lost or made recently if you're in one of the markets, and how much you will need in going forward with your life. And by the way, with consumption, hey, don't get me started. Right now, Americans are subjected to around 10,000 advertisements every single day. They pop off up by the scores on our screens. They're, they're found everywhere. Almost three million of them a year an American will encounter. We find ourselves buying things we don't need and then living lives burdened, literally burdened by our stuff. And it never seems to end. It promises joy, but that joy is short-lived. And our kids, by the way, do you know, they see this. They know what we're living for. A recent study done of fifth graders, they were asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they didn't say doctor or pilot or lawyer. They said, I want to be rich. And the reason is because we have taught our kids that this is the ticket to life. This is how you have a life. This is what life is all about. And so how are we going to be set free from this dragon? How are we going to be free to live for the kingdom of God and to, um, to engage the mission of God in this arena of our lives? And that's what I want to look at with you today. Now, before we get to our text, we need to see how the mission of the gospel went forward. We need to be realists about this, right? We often think, okay, these disciples, they walked away from their day jobs Jesus called them to follow him, and they just walked around, and, and they, they did fine. They were okay. We think that that's how it worked, that they could just do this for three years without worrying about providing for themselves and their family. But it wasn't true. There are places in the Gospels where we get this little vision, this glimpse into how it was possible. Here's one of them from the Gospel of Luke. Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, Matt, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons came, had gone out, and jo Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. And then look at what it says at the end, who provided for them out of their means. You see, they had to buy food too. They had to live as well. This wasn't magic, right? It, it required the generosity of people. And we find out Jesus, like no other rabbi, first he had women disciples with him. And there were those who were sacrificing to make all of this possible. They were freely and willingly stepping forward to provide for the apostles. You know this is true today? Right now, around the world, there are about 400,000 full-time Christian missionaries who, um, who, by the way, who are supported by the voluntary gifts of people who want to see the mission of Jesus go forward in the world. In addition, there are about a million that serve in short-term capacities, three or four months to two, three or four years. In the United States, there are almost 1.5 million missionaries, people like Julieta that you saw just a moment ago, and, and April who will be in the lobby afterward, who, who work for Youth for Christ. And by the way, it is by the gracious gifts 
of those who love Jesus that they're doing all this ministry. You see, here we're getting a glimpse into generosity and what it is. What is it? Well, it's giving good things to others freely and abundantly. That's what it is. And by the way, in the ancient world, this was exceedingly rare. And it was especially rare connected with religious faith. And here's why. You see, in the service of the gods, gifts were not really gifts. They were used to gain favor, to be protected from dangers. You see, every day, chaos and destruction were constant threats, and it was only through making sacrifices that you could get the gods to treat you well. So sacrifices were an expression of fear and insecurity, and if you wanted your crops to grow, well, you had to make sacrifice. You wanted to have children, you needed to make sacrifice. If you wanted to keep from getting sick, you needed to make sacrifices. They were a way of getting life for yourself, of purchasing from the gods the life you wanted. But these very sacrifices were anathema for the people of God because God doesn't work that way at all. We were singing about this, right? How God is the one who provides for him. We cannot placate him with sacrifices. We cannot gain his favor by ma making sacrifices because he gives freely. And so for the first time, we see gifts come into our world that, wow, they're really gifts. There are no strings attached to that. Given freely from the heart, a response to God's love, they're not required. Here's our text for today. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What a cool name, right? A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let me tell you, the early writers of that would be like, no way. There's no way a person did that. And let me tell you why it was shocking. First, the cost of the gift. You see, land was the way that you would invest in your future and the future of your family. And the reason was because economies were always changing. They couldn't be counted on. But if you had land, you could always, you could always grow crops or care for animals. You would always be provided for. Therefore, land was only sold in the most desperate of times, and it was never sold voluntarily. But that's what this guy Barnabas is doing. And then he gave freely. He didn't tell the apostles how to use it. He, he literally laid it at the apostles' feet. And he received nothing in return. He wasn't buying a position or gaining favor. His resources built, built a bridge between those who had wealth and those who were in need. And also between those who were older and those who were younger. And here was this beautiful generosity you see, these moments are, are important, not just because they further the mission, they reveal the presence of God among the people. People would look at this and say, man, why would a person do that? What's going on with that? Every now and then I get to see this, and it's so beautiful. Years ago when Sandy and I were serving a little church outside of New York City in suburban New Jersey, that church met in a rented hall for 15 years. The people sat up every chair every week and had to lay and tape down all the cords used for the sound system. And every week I would speak at a pulpit that was between two pool tables. We could shoot pool right after the service. You know, it was this recreation hall. And the people, though they didn't have that much in the way of resources and things were very expensive there, decided to build a building. And I remember the first offering that was made 
When the deacons counted the offering, they found in there an Indian bridal necklace. And we knew instantly who had given it. She had worn this necklace around her neck since the day she was married in India. It had the same meaning in her culture as a wedding ring in our culture. It was the most valuable and meaningful possession she owned. And I remember the deacons coming forward and thinking that a mistake had been made. And they asked her, you know, how she could possibly give this if she meant to and why she did. And she said, well, it's because of Jesus. She says, I have everything because of Jesus. And Jesus has loved me. You see, it was astounding for us. Because there was something that was not required. It was given freely. And the readers of the book of Acts, they'd be scandalized by this kind of generosity that Barnabas and and, and think about this, just as our leaders were scandalized by that gift of that woman, people would wonder, really, would you be so devoted that you would make this kind of sacrifice? You think we, see, we think generosity is about amounts of money, but in the kingdom of God, such signs, they are, they, they are signs of, the, of love and devotion to Christ. They're signs that God is among us, and he's, he's working in people's lives because they shift your values Signs that the gospel is real. Okay, so I hear all of that, and I say, okay, wow, if this is that awesome and beautiful and powerful, why don't we practice it more? I think, we un- I think this is why. We misunderstand how money rules in our lives. As I mentioned before, we think money is neutral, that it's merely a medium of exchange. God gave it to us to get things done, and that's all. But that's not all. There is more. You see, Scripture tells us that beneath our world are what are called individual, I'm sorry, invisible realities. You could call them powers, actually. These motivating powers drive our world and the way that we live. And God originally made them for good as a part of his good creation. But these powers are in revolt against God. And that means that behind all of our investment portfolios and savings account, there are actually spiritual powers that are at work. This is why Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he said, you cannot serve God and money. You hear what he's done? He's like lifted up money and he said, you may not know it, This is a rival deity in your life. He says there is no neutral ground here. You cannot have two gods. You can only serve one. Or as the the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he put it like this. Our hearts have room for only one all-embracing devotion. And we can only cleave to one Lord. You know, I think of that when I hear the story of Jesus meeting the guy called the rich young ruler. By the way, his motives were good. He came to Jesus and he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, what about the law? Have you kept the law? And he said, oh yes, since I've been a boy. I've been faithful to keep the law of God. But then Jesus said, hey, sell what you have and get rid of it. Give give the resources to the poor. 
But the man couldn't do that, so he walked away sad. And by the way, Jesus didn't ask him that because he needed the money. He asked him that because he loved that young man. It's because of the place that the money had in his heart. It had taken the place of God and had become his identity. That's why he's called the rich young guy, right? And here is what we learn. What we cannot lay at the feet of God as Barnabas did will become a God for us. In other words, whatever in your life you cannot put in submission to God will, will have, begin to take that place for you. And that's the reality of the way it works. We look to it for our future or our survival or our joy or our security or our sense of well-being or our identity like this rich young guy. And by the way, we may sacrifice like the pagans did because we want to gain favors from God, but we're really serving money and ourselves and not God. So like the young man, this power rules in our lives with such intensity we cannot even see it. I mean, I think of that. You know, this past year I told you I went through the Lord of the Rings trilogy again. And I always think of the character Gollum, right? Like, my precious, my precious. And we see how this has become like a malignant cancer that has twisted around his heart until he no longer knows who he is anymore. And in the end, he dies trying to get his hands on it one last time. You see, how are we going to let go of that which has such a great hold on us. How is that going to happen? How can we be set free? I think I see it in the story of the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. You know, Jesus was going through Jericho, and normally when a person like Jesus would go through a village or town, he would be led over to the, to the home of the most prominent person in town, the person most respected, most loved, and Jesus actually walks through town like he's not even going to stay, and on the other side of town, he points at a guy and he says, hey, I'm coming to your house today. It was the worst guy in town, this tax collector named Zacchaeus. And what, what happened in that visit was Zacchaeus learned as broken and sinful and evil as he had been, he was loved by God. And as a result, he gives half of his resources to the poor and he restores everything that had been stolen. And here's what Jesus says at that point. Today, salvation has come to this house. You see, it could be seen in the way he viewed everything that he had. He wasn't commanded to give his resources away, but he did because he was loved at his worst. It was the grace of Jesus that changed his heart. You see, he deserved rejection and judgment, and he had that from all the people. But in Jesus, he received forgiveness and restoration. And I think at some point in time as Christ followers, this happens to us. Our economy, our way of thinking of this all change, and it's reoriented. And by the way, when, when the power of this is broken in our lives, we come to enjoy our freedom over it and with it. And I think we can be generous with people around us. I've shared with you, I know, um, one of my favorite stories of sort of the penny dropping um, before. It, it comes from this guy. This is Liam Neeson playing Oscar Schindler in Schindler's List. It's one of the most painful movies in which you see how, how horrible we can be to fellow human beings. And by the way, he's a member of the Nazi party, and he finds it very fruitful to be able to request and get Jews for workers in his factory. Because he can treat them however he wants. And so he does that. And by the way, he has no love for them. He doesn't care about them. They are a means of production for him. They're, they're nothing to him. 
His goal was to become rich. And in the process, he does end up saving hundreds of Jews from being shipped off to the concentration camps where they would be gasped. But again, it's all about money. But there's a moment in time when things begin to change for him. And the, ta- the tables are turned. He develops a friendship with his Jewish administrator. His name is Itzhak Stern. And when they're finally liberated at the end of the world war, the Jewish people that he saved come out of the factory and they surround him to thank him because they, have the, they owe their lives to him. And it's then he starts to see the real economy of things, the value of each person. And by the way, his heart is broken right there. And he speaks to those who he has saved. He breaks down and he's weeping and he starts to lose it. This is what he says. He says, I threw away so much money. You, you have no idea if I, if I just... And right then, Stern sort of grabs him and hugs him. And he, he's standing outside by his car. He looks around and he sees his car. This is what he says. He says, why did I keep the car? There's 10 people right there. 10 more I could have got. This, this pen, he, he points to his lapel. Two people. It's gold. Two more people. He would have given me two for it. At least one. He would have given me one more. One more. One more person. A person. For this one more, I could have gotten one. And what you see happen is this realignment of his values. It, you think it's too late. But he sees what has happened. He, he realizes, and here is this change in values that takes place in him. And I think about that, and I think, oh, that's exactly what the cross does in all of us. It changes our values. You see, we find the very opposite in Jesus of pagan religion. The very opposite of, oh, we have to buy the goodness of God. We have to buy a good life from him. We've got to pay him. We've got to sacrifice. And what we find is Jesus turns that around, and instead of saying, you sacrifice to me, the God we know and worship is the God who sacrificed himself for you. This is what Jesus said. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. He lays everything aside for us. And in the middle of this moment, you know what's happening? In the middle of this moment, one of his own disciples shows up and sells him out for just a few bits of silver. You see, what Jesus is doing and the whole gospel story is the challenging of our whole economy and the way we believe everything works. We think it's about buying and selling and it's about giving and serving And he's trying to restore us to to our nature, being made in his image. And I think a point in time comes when we're struck by it all. And we even ask the question, how have I lived like this? How have I lived like this for so long? Why have I given my life for this? And I think this is what has happened to Barnabas. This is why he's giving. But as I read this, I wonder, has this happened to me? Has it happened in your life? This is why Jesus said, It is better to give than receive. Because when you can do that, you know your heart gets the economy of the real and living God in Jesus. And our hearts become free, and we can do so, and freely do so. And by the way, what comes of this, as Julietta read for us, is an entirely new community. Let me read it again. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any one of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them 
And they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as they had need. And so this beautiful new community was born not based on the economy that was all around them. And by the way, this isn't socialism. It's not communism. That says what's yours belongs to everyone. What they were saying is what's mine I'm willing to give to you because of what Jesus has done for me. And what resulted was a new kind of community that helped provide a security that every one of us needs, right? I mean, we know God cares for us, but they could see it concretely around them as people were taking care of each other, loving each other. They were generous with each other. And it was astounding. No wonder the church was growing. You see, they not only heard the apostles teach about the resurrection, they could see people being raised up right and left around them, raised out of their anxiety to generosity and mutual love. And as I read this, I pray that we learn this way. I mean, we are living in a city that is all about consumption, and it's so, it's so intoxicating. It's so easy to be drawn into it. And I hope this happens not just because the resources will further the mission of the gospel in the world, but because this generosity shows forth the gospel. It shows the God who instead of saying we must sacrifice for him, has come and made sacrifice for us. That's our celebration today in the Lord's Supper. So how do you respond? Maybe as your family, you need to do what Hannah did with her parents. Go back and have a family meeting. Talk to your spouse and say, how, how are, we living? are we living like this is our life? And that we have to depend on more and more. Or, or, or do we have security in Christ that we can ask how God would have us be a part of his mission in the world. Then begin in a smart way. Surprise your neighbor with generosity. Come alongside the folks at Youth for Christ to support what they're doing. And other places in the kingdom of God as you're able. Find a way to put to good use what God has already provided to you. Would you pray together with me? Lord, we sort of squirm in our chairs when we even hear this topic come up and when we hear the gospel and we discover that though Jesus was rich, he made himself poor, that we through his riches, the wonder of his grace, that we might have the kind of, of riches that make it possible to be generous with our lives, with our time, with our love, with our resources with all that you provided to us. And Father, I thank you that in this, you haven't laid upon us a new law that we have to keep, but you've given us the opportunity to join you in your work in the world. And Lord, thank you for the ability to do that. Thank you that, that we can partner with folks like Youth for Christ over at South Miami High School, that we can, that we can come together to encourage the youth of our city this next week. Um, that we can support missionaries from Granada that are all around the world, that we can also learn to love our neighbors too. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.